0: Part 9 of The Lady of the Shroud by Bram Stoker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Part 9. Book 6, The Pursuit in the Forest. Rupert's Journal continued. July 3rd, 1907. There is no anodyne but work to pain of the heart, and my pain is all of the heart. I sometimes feel that it is rather hard with so much to make me happy, I cannot know happiness. How can I be happy when my wife, whom I fondly love, and who I know loves me, is suffering in horror and loneliness of a kind which is almost beyond human belief? However, what is my loss as my country's gain? For the land of the Blue Mountains is my country now, despite the fact that I am still a loyal subject of good King Edward. Uncle Roger took care of that when he said I should have the consent of the Privy Council before I might be naturalized anywhere else. When I got home yesterday morning, I naturally could not sleep. The events of the night and the bitter disappointment that followed my exciting joy made such a thing impossible. When I drew the curtain over the window, the reflection of the sunrise was just beginning to tinge the high-sailing clouds in front of me. I laid down and tried to rest, but without avail. However, I schooled myself to lie still, and at last, if I did not sleep, was at least quiescent. Disturbed by a gentle tap at the door, I sprang up at once and threw on a dressing gown. Outside, when I opened the door, was Aunt Janet. She was holding a lighted candle in her hand, for though it was getting light in the open, the passages were still dark. When she saw me, she seemed to breathe more freely, and asked if she might come in. Whilst she sat on the edge of my bed, in her old-time way, she said in a hushed voice, Oh, laddie, laddie, I trust your burden is no too heavy to bear. My burden? What on earth do you mean, Aunt Janet? I said in reply. I did not wish to commit myself by a definite answer, for it was evident that she had been dreaming or second-sighting again. She replied with the grim seriousness usual to her when she touched on occult matters. I saw your hair bleeding, laddie, I kent it was yours, though how I kent it I don't know. It lay on a stone floor in the dark, save for a dim blue light such as corpse lights are. On it was placed a great book, and close around were scattered many strange things, amongst them two crowns of flowers. The one bound with silver, the other with gold. There was also a golden cup, like a chalice, or turned. The red wine trickled from it and mingled with your hair's blood. For on the great book was some vast dim weight, wrapped up in black, and on it stepped in turn many men, all swathed in black. And as the way to eat came on it, the blood gushed out afresh and oh your pure herd was quick and leaping so that at every beat it raised the black clad weight and yet that was not all for hard by stood a tall imperial shape of a woman all red in white with a great veil of finest lace worn our shrewd and she was whiter than the snow and fairer than the morn for beauty though a dark woman she was hair like the raven and eyes black as the sea at night, and there were stars in them and at each beat a your a bleeding heart she wrung her white hands and the main and o'er a sweet voice rent my heart in twain oh laddie laddie what does it mean i managed to murmur i'm sure i don't know Aunt janet i suppose it was all a dream a dream it was my dear a dream or a vision, what a marriage name, for all such are warned saint frae God. Suddenly she said in a different voice, laddie, ye been false to any lassie? I am no blaming ye, for ye men are different frae us women, and your regard on right and wrong differs from ours. But, oh, laddie, a woman's tears fall heavy when her heart is forsair with a yield into false words. "'Tis a heavy burden for any man to carry with him as he goes, "'and may well cause pain to others that he fain would spare. "'She stopped, and in dead silence waited for me to speak. "'I thought it would be best to set her poor loving heart at rest, "'and as I could not divulge my special secret, spoke in general terms. "'And, Janet, I am a man, and have led a man's life, such as it is, But I can tell you who have always loved me and taught me to be true that in all the world there is no woman who must weep for any falsity of mine. If there be any who sleeping or waking in dreams or visions or in reality weeps because of me it is surely not for my doing but because of something outside me. It may be that her heart is sore because I must suffer as all men must in some degree but she does not weep for or through any act of mine. She sighed happily at my assurance and looked up through her tears, for she was much moved, and after tenderly kissing my forehead and blessing me, she stole away. She was more sweet and tender than I have words to say, and the only regret that I have in all that is gone is that I have not been able to bring my wife to her and let her share in the love she has for me. That, that too will come, please God in the morning, I sent a message to Rook at Otranto, instructing him by code to bring the yacht to Vassarion in the coming night. All day, I spent in going about amongst the mountaineers, drilling them and looking after their arms. I could not stay still. My only chance of peace was to work, my only chance of sleep to tire myself out. Unhappily, I am very strong so even when I came home at dark, I was quite fresh. However, I found a cable message from Rook that the yacht would arrive at midnight. There was no need to summon the mountaineers, as the men in the castle would be sufficient to make preparations for the yacht's coming. Later. The yacht has come. At half-past eleven, The lookout signalled that a steamer without lights was creeping in towards the creek. I ran out to the flagstaff and saw her steal in like a ghost. She is painted a steely blue-gray, and it is almost impossible to see her at any distance. She certainly goes wonderfully. Although there was not enough throb from the engines to mar the absolute stillness, she came on at a fine speed, and within a few minutes was close to the boom. I had only time to run down to give orders to draw back the boom, when she glided in and stopped dead at the harbour wall. Rook steered her himself, and he says... He never was on a boat that so well or so quickly answered her helm. She is certainly a beauty, and so far as I can see at night, perfect in every detail. I promise myself a few pleasant hours over her in the daylight. The men seem a splendid lot, but I do not feel sleepy. I despair of sleep tonight, but work demands that I be fit for whatever may come, and so I shall try to sleep, to rest at any rate rupert's journal continued july fourth nineteen o seven i was up with the first ray of sunrise so by the time i had my bath and was dressed there was ample light i went down to the dock at once and spent the morning looking over the vessel which fully justifies rook's enthusiasm about her she is built on lovely lines and i can quite understand that she is enormously fast her armor i can only take on the specifications But her armament is really wonderful, and there are not only all the very newest devices of aggressive warfare— indeed, she has the newest up-to-date torpedoes and torpedo guns— but also the old-fashioned rocket tubes, which in certain occasions are so useful. She has electric guns, and the latest Massillon water guns, and Reinhardt electro-pneumatic deliverers for peroxylene shells. She is even equipped with war balloons, easy of expansion, and with compressible kits and aeroplanes. I don't suppose that there is anything quite like her in the world. The crew are worthy of her. I can't imagine where Brooke picked up such a splendid lot of men. They are nearly all man-of-warsmen, of of various nationalities, but mostly British. All young men. The oldest of them hasn't got into the forties. And, so far as I can learn, all experts of one kind or another in some special subject of warfare. It will go hard with me, but I shall keep them together. How I got through the rest of the day I know not. I tried hard not to create any domestic trouble by my manner, lest Aunt Janet should, after her lurid dream or vision of last night, attach some new importance to it. I think I succeeded, for she did not, so far as I could tell, take any special notice of me. We parted, as usual, at half-past ten, and I came here and made this entry in my journal. I am more restless than ever tonight, and no wonder. I would give anything to be able to pay a visit to St. Salva's and see my wife again, if it were only sleeping in a tomb. But I dare not do even that, lest she should come to see me here, and I should miss her. So I have done what I can. The glass door to the terrace is open, so that she can enter at once if she comes. The fire is lit, and the room is warm. There is food ready in case she should care for it i have plenty of light in the room so that through an aperture where i have not fully drawn the curtain there may be light to guide her oh how the time drags the clock has struck midnight one two thank goodness it will shortly be dawn and the activity of the day may begin work may again prove in a way to be an anodyne "'In the meantime, I must write on, lest despair overwhelm me. "'Once during the night, I thought I heard a footstep outside. "'I rushed to the window and looked out, "'for there was nothing to see, no sound to hear. "'That was a little after one o'clock. "'I feared to go outside, lest that should alarm her, "'so I came back to my table. "'I could not write, but I sat as if writing for a while, "'but I could not stand it, so rose and walked about the room. "'As I walked... I felt that my lady, it gives me a pang every time I remember that I do not know even her name, was not quite so far away from me. It made my heart beat to think that it might mean that she was coming to me. Could not I, as well as Aunt Janet, have a little second sight? I went towards the window, and standing behind the curtain, listened. Far away, I thought I heard a cry, and ran out on the terrace. But there was no sound to be heard and no sign of any living thing anywhere so i took it for granted that it was the cry of some night bird and came back to my room and wrote at my journal till i was calm i think my nerves must be getting out of order when every sound of the night seems to have a special meaning for me rupert's journal continued july seventh, nineteen 1907 when the gray of the morning came i gave up hope of my wife appearing and made up my mind that, as soon as I could get away without exciting Aunt Janet's attention, I would go to St. Sava's. I always eat a good breakfast, and, did I forego it altogether, it would be sure to excite her curiosity, a thing I do not wish at present. As there was still time to wait, I lay down on my bed as I was, and, such is the way of fate, shortly fell asleep. I was awakened by a terrific clattering at my door. When I opened it, I found a little group of servants very apologetic at wakening me without instructions. The chief of them explained that a young priest had come from the Vladica with a message so urgent that he insisted on seeing me immediately, at all hazards. I came out at once, and found him in the hall of the castle, standing before the great fire which was always lit in the early morning. He had a letter in his hand, but before giving it to me, he said, I am sent by the Vladika, who pressed on me that I was not to lose a single instant in seeing you. That time is of golden price, nay, beyond price. This letter, amongst other things, vouches for me. A terrible misfortune has occurred. The daughter of our leader has disappeared during last night. The same he commanded me to remind you that he spoke of at the meeting when he would not let the mountaineers fire their guns. No sign of her can be found and it is believed that she has been carried off by the emissaries of the sultan of turkey who once before brought our nations to the verge of war by demanding her as a wife i was also to say that the vladigoplamenak would have come himself but that it was necessary that he should at once consult with the archbishop stephen paleolog as to what step is best to take in this dire calamity he has sent out a search party under the archimandrite of Petrov Lastomir, who is to come on here with any news he can get, as you have command of the signaling and can best spread the news. He knows that you, Gospodar, are in your great heart one of our compatriots, and that you have already proved your friendship by many efforts to strengthen our hands for war. And as a great compatriot, he calls on you to aid us in our need. He then handed me the letter and stood by respectfully whilst I broke the seal and read it. It was written in great haste and signed by the vladeca come with us now in our nation's peril help us to rescue what we most adore and henceforth we shall hold you in our hearts you shall learn how the men of the blue mountains can love faith and valor come this was a task indeed a duty worthy of any man it thrilled me to the core to know that the men of the blue mountains had called on me in their dire need it woke all the fighting instinct of my viking forebears and I vowed in my heart that they should be satisfied with my work. I called to me the corps of signalers who were in the house and led them to the castle roof, taking with me the young messenger-priest. Come with me, I said to him, and see how I answer the Vladikas' command. The national flag was run up. The established signal that the nation was in need. Instantly, on every summit near and far, was seen the flutter of an answering flag quickly followed the signal that commanded the call to arms. One by one, I gave the signalers orders in quick succession, for the plan of search unfolded itself to me as I went on. The arms of the semaphore whirled in a way that made the young priest stare. One by one, as they took their orders, the signalers seemed to catch fire. Instinctively, they understood the plan and worked like demigods. They knew that so widespread a movement had its best chance in rapidity and in unity of action. From the forest which lay in sight of the castle came a wild cheering which seemed to interpret the former stillness of the hills. It was good to feel that those who saw the signals, types of many, were ready. I saw the look of expectation on the face of the messenger priest and rejoiced at the glow that came as I turned to him to speak. Of course, he wanted to know something of what was going on. I saw the flashing of my own eyes reflected in his as I spoke. Tell the Vladika that within a minute of his message being read the land of the Blue Mountains was awake. The mountaineers are already marching, and before the sun is high there will be a line of guards within a hail of each other round the whole frontier, from Anguza to Ilsin, from Ilsin to Bahana, from Bahana to Ispazar, from Isbizar to Volok, from Volok to Tatra from Tatra to Domatan, from Domitain to Grabaha, and from Grabaha back to Angusa, The line is double. The old men keep guard on the line, and the young men advance. These will close in at the advancing line, so that nothing can escape them. They will cover mountain top and forest depth, and will close in finally on the castle here, which they can behold from afar. My own yacht is here, and will sweep the coast from end to end, it is the fastest boat afloat and armed against a squadron here will all signals come in an hour where we stand will be a signal bureau where trained eyes will watch night and day till the lost one has been found and the outrage has been avenged the robbers are even now within a ring of steel and cannot escape the young priest all on fire sprang on the battlements and shouted to the crowd which was massing round the castle and the gardens far below the forest was giving up its units till they seemed like the nucleus of an army. The men cheered lustily till the sound swung high up to us like the roaring of a winter sea. With bared heads they were crying, God of the Blue Mountains! God and the Blue Mountains! I ran down to them as quickly as I could and began to issue their instructions. Within a time to be computed by minutes, the whole number, organized by sections, had started to scour the neighbouring mountains. At first, they had only understood the call to arms for general safety, but when they learned that the daughter of a chief had been captured, they simply went mad. From something which the messenger first said, but which I could not catch or did not understand, the blow seemed to have for them some sort of personal significance which wrought them to a frenzy. When the bulk of the men had disappeared, I took with me a few of my own men, and several of the mountaineers whom I had asked to remain, and together we went to the hidden ravine which I knew. We found the place empty, but there were unmistakable signs that a party of men had been encamped there for several days. Some of our men, who were skilled in woodcraft and in signs generally, agreed that there must have been some twenty of them. As they could not find any trail either coming to or going from the place, They came to the conclusion that they must have come separately from different directions and gathered there, and that they must have departed in something of the same mysterious way. However, this was, at any rate, some sort of a beginning, and the men separated, having agreed amongst themselves to make a wide cast round the place in the search for tracks. Whoever should find a trail was to follow with at least one comrade, and when there was any definite news it was to be signalled to the castle. I myself returned at once, and set the signalers to work, to spread amongst our own people such news as we had. When presently such discoveries as had been made were signalled with flags to the castle, it was found that the marauders had, in their flight, followed a strangely zigzag course. It was evident that, in trying to baffle pursuit, they had tried to avoid places which they thought might be dangerous to them. This may have been simply a method to disconcert pursuit. If so, it was in a measure excellent, for none of those immediately following could possibly tell in what direction they were heading. It was only when we worked the course on the great map in the signaller's room, which was the old guardroom of the castle, that we could get an inkling of the general direction of their flight. This gave added trouble to the pursuit, for the men who followed, being ignorant of their general intent, could not ever take chance to head them off, but had to be ready to follow in any or every direction. In this manner the pursuit was altogether a stern chase, and therefore bound to be a long one. As at present we could not do anything till the intended route was more marked, I left the signaling corps to the task of receiving and giving information to the moving bands, so that if occasion served they might head off the marauders. I myself took Rook as captain of the yacht and swept out of the creek. We ran up north to Deleri, then down south to Alesso, and came back to Visaria. We saw nothing suspicious except far off to the extreme southward one warship which flew no flag. Rook, however, who seemed to know ships by instinct, said she was a Turk, so on our return we signalled along the whole shore to watch her. Rook held the lady which was the name i had given the armoured yacht in readiness to dart out in case anything suspicious was reported he was not to stand on any ceremony but if necessary to attack we did not intend to lose a point in this desperate struggle which we had undertaken we had placed in different likely spots a couple of our own men to look after the signalling when i got back i found that the root of the fugitives who had now joined into one party had been definitely ascertained. They had gone south, but manifestly taking alarm from the advancing line of guards, had headed up again to the northeast, where the country was broader and the mountains wilder and less inhabited. Forthwith, leaving the signaling altogether in the hands of the fighting priests, I took a small chosen band of the mountaineers of our own district and made with all the speed we could to cut across the track of the fugitives a little ahead of them. The Archimandrite, Abbot of Speza, who had just arrived, came with us. He is a splendid man, a real fighter as well as a holy cleric, as good with his hand-jar as with his Bible, and a runner to beat the band. The marauders were going at a fearful pace, considering that they were all afoot, so we had to go fast also. Amongst these mountains there is no other means of progressing. Our own men were so aflame with ardor That I could not but notice that they, more than any of the others whom I had seen, had some special cause for concern. When I mentioned it to the Archimandrite, who moved by my side, he answered, Oh, natural enough, they are not only fighting for their country, but for their own. I did not quite understand his answer, and so began to ask him some questions, to the effect that I soon began to understand a good deal more than he did. Letter from Archbishop Stephen Paleologue, head of the Eastern Church of the Blue Mountains, to the Lady Janet McKelpie, Cessarion. Britain, July 9, 1907. Honoured Lady, As you wish for an understanding regarding the late lamentable occurrence in which so much danger was incurred to this our land of the Blue Mountains, and one dear to us, I send these words by request of the Gospodar Rupert, beloved of our mountaineers. When the Voivode Peter Vissarion made his journey to the great nation to whom we looked in our hour of need, it was necessary that he should go in secret. The Turk was at our gates, and full of the malice of baffled greed. Already he had tried to arrange a marriage with the Voivoden, so that in time to come he, as her husband, might have established a claim to the inheritance of the land. Well he knew, as do all men, that the Blue Mountaineers owe allegiance to none that they themselves do not appoint to rulership. This has been the history in the past. But now and again an individual has arisen or come to the front adapted personally for such government as this land requires. And so the Lady Tuta, Voivoden of the Blue Mountains, was put for her proper guarding in the charge of myself as head of the Eastern Church in the land of the Blue Mountains, steps being taken in such wise that no capture of her could be effected by unscrupulous enemies of this our land this task and guardianship was gladly held as an honour by all concerned for the voivodin Tuta of visarion must be taken as representing in her own person the glory of the old serb race inasmuch as being the only child of the voivod visarion last male of his princely race the race which ever during the ten centuries of our history unflinchingly gave life and all they held for the protection safety and well-being of the land of the blue mountains never during those centuries had any one of the race been known to fail in patriotism or to draw back from any loss or hardship enjoined by high duty or stress of need moreover this was the race of that first voivode Bessarion, of whom in legend it was prophesied that he once known as the sword of freedom a giant amongst men would some day when the nation had need of him come forth from his water tomb in the lost lake of Rio and lead once more the men of the Blue Mountains to lasting victory. This noble race then had come to be known as the last hope of the land, so that when the voivode was away on his country's service, his daughter should be closely guarded. Soon after the voivode had gone, it was reported that he might be long delayed in his diplomacies and also in studying the system of constitutional monarchy for which it had been hoped to exchange our imperfect political system. I may say inter alia that he was mentioned as to be the first king when the new constitution should have been arranged. Then a great misfortune came on us. A terrible grief overshadowed the land. After a short illness, the Voivoden Tuta Vasarian died mysteriously of a mysterious ailment. The grief of the mountaineers was so great that it became necessary for the governing council to warn them not to allow their sorrow to be seen. It was imperatively necessary that the fact of her death should be kept secret, for there were dangers and difficulties of several kinds. In the first place, it was advisable that even her father should be kept in ignorance of his terrible loss. It was well known that he held her as the very core of his heart, and that if he should hear of her death, he would be too much prostrated to be able to do the intricate and delicate work which he had undertaken. Nay more, he would never remain far off under the sad circumstances, but would straightway return, so as to be in the land where she lay. Then suspicions would crop up, and the truth must shortly be known afield, with the inevitable result that the land would become the very centre of a war of many nations. In the second place... If the Turks were to know that the race of Vissarion was becoming extinct, such would encourage them to further aggression, which would become immediate, should they find out that the voivode was himself away. It was well known that they were already only suspending hostilities until a fitting opportunity should arise. Their desire for aggression had become acute after the refusal of the nation, and of the girl herself, that she should become a wife of the Sultan. The dead girl had been buried in the crypt of the church of St. Sava, and day after day and night after night, singly and in parties, the sorrowing mountaineers had come to pay devotion and reverence at her tomb. So many had wished to have a last glimpse of her face that the Vládica had, with my own consent as Archbishop, arranged for a glass cover to be put over the stone coffin wherein her body lay. After a little time, however, there came a belief to all concerned in the guarding of the body, these, of course, being the priests, of various degrees of dignity appointed to the task, that the voivoden was not really dead, but only in a strangely prolonged trance. Thereupon, a new complication arose. Our mountaineers are, as perhaps you know, by nature, deeply suspicious, a characteristic of all brave and self-sacrificing people who are jealous of their noble heritage having as they believed seen the girl dead they might not be willing to accept the fact of her being alive they might even imagine that there was on foot some deep dark plot which was or might be a menace now or hereafter to their independence in any case there would be certain to be two parties on the subject a dangerous and deplorable thing in the present condition of affairs as the trance, or catalepsy, whatever it was, continued for many days, there had been ample time for the leaders of the council, the vladica, the priesthood represented by the Archimandrite of Spazak, myself as Archbishop, and guardian of the Voivoden in her father's absence, to consult as to a policy to be observed in case of the girl awaking. For in such case, the difficulty of the situation would be multiplied indefinitely. In the secret chambers of St. Sava's, we had many secret meetings, and were finally converging on agreement when the end of the trance came. The girl awoke. She was, of course, terribly frightened when she found herself in a tomb in the crypt. It was truly fortunate that the great candles around her tomb had been kept lighted, for their light mitigated the horror of the place. Had she waked in darkness, her reason might have become unseated. She was, however, a very noble girl, brave, with extraordinary will and resolution and self-command and power of endurance. When she had been taken into one of the secret chambers of the church, where she was warmed and cared for, a hurried meeting was held by the vladika, myself, and the chiefs of the National Council. Word had been at once sent to me of the joyful news of her recovery, and with the utmost haste I came, arriving in time to take a part in the Council. At the meeting, the Voivodun was herself present, and full confidence of the situation was made to her. She herself proposed that the belief in her death should be allowed to prevail until the return of her father, when all could be effectively made clear. To this end, she undertook to submit to the terrific strain which such a proceeding would involve. At first, we men could not believe that any woman could go through with such a task and some of us did not hesitate to voice our doubts, our disbelief. But she stood to her guns and actually down-faced us. At the last we, remembering things that had been done, though long years ago by others of her race, came to believe not merely in her self-belief and intention, but even in the feasibility of her plan. She took the most solemn oaths not to betray the secret under any possible stress. The priesthood undertook, through the Vládica and myself, to further a ghostly belief amongst the mountaineers which would tend to prevent a too close or too persistent observation. The vampire legend was spread as a protection against partial discovery by any mischance, and other weird beliefs were set afoot and fostered. Arrangements were made that only on certain days were the mountaineers to be admitted to the crypt she agreeing that for these occasions she was to take opiates or carry out any other aid to the preservation of the secret. She was willing, she impressed upon us, to make any personal sacrifice which might be deemed necessary for the carrying out of her father's task for the good of the nation. Of course she had at first terrible frights lying alone in the horror of the crypt, but after a time the terrors of the situation, if they did not cease, were mitigated. There are secret caverns off the crypt, wherein, in troublous times, the priests and others of High Place have found safe retreat. One of these was prepared for the Voivoden, and there she remained except for such times as she was on show, and certain other times of which I shall tell you. Provision was made for the possibility of any accidental visit to the church. At such times, warned by an automatic signal from the opening door, she was to take her place in the tomb. The mechanism was so arranged that the means to replace the glass cover and to take the opiate were there ready to her hand. There was to be always a watch of priests at night in the church to guard her from ghostly fears, as well as from more physical dangers, and if she was actually in the tomb, it was to be visited at certain intervals. Even the draperies which covered her in the sarcophagus were rested on a bridge placed from side to side just above her, so as to hide the rising and falling of her bosom as she slept under the narcotic. After a while the prolonged strain began to tell so much on her that it was decided that she should take now and again exercise out of doors. This was not difficult, for when the vampire story which we had spread began to be widely known, her being seen would be accepted as a proof of its truth. Still, as there was a certain danger in her being seen at all, we thought it necessary to exact from her a solemn oath that so long as her sad task lasted she should under no circumstances ever wear any dress but her shroud this being the only way to ensure secrecy and to prevail against accident there is a secret way from the crypt to a sea cavern whose entrance is at high tide under the water line at the base of the cliff on which the church is built a boat shaped like a coffin, was provided for her, and in this she was accustomed to pass across the creek whenever she wished to make excursion. It was an excellent device, and most efficacious in disseminating the vampire belief. This state of things had now lasted from before the time when the Khospodar Rupert came to Visarion, up to the day of the arrival of the armored yacht. That night, the priest on duty, on going his round of the crypt just before dawn, found the tomb empty he called the others and they made full search the boat was gone from the cavern but on making search they found it on the farther side of the creek close to the garden stairs beyond this they could discover nothing she seemed to have disappeared without leaving a trace straightway they went to the vladica and signaled to me by the fire signal at the monastery at astrag where i then was i took a band of mountaineers with me and set out to scour the country. But before going, I sent an urgent message to the Gospodar Rupert, asking him, who showed so much interest and love to our land, to help us in our trouble. He of course knew nothing then of all I have now told you. Nevertheless, he devoted himself wholeheartedly to our needs, as doubtless you know. But the time had now come close, when the voivode Vissarion was about to return from his mission and we of the council of his daughter's guardianship were beginning to arrange matters so that at his return the good news of her being still alive could be made public with her father present to vouch for her no question as to truth could arise but by some means the turkish bureau of spies must have got knowledge of the fact already to steal a dead body for the purpose of later establishing a fictitious claim would have been an enterprise even more desperate than that already undertaken. We inferred from many signs, made known to us in an investigation, that a daring party of the sultan's emissaries had made a secret incursion with the object of kidnapping the Voivoden. They must have been bold of heart and strong of resource to enter the land of the Blue Mountains on any errand, let alone such a desperate one as this. For centuries we have been teaching the Turk through bitter lessons that it is neither a safe task nor an easy one to make incursion here. How they did it we know not at present. But enter they did, and after waiting in some secret hiding place for a favourable opportunity secured their prey. We know not even now whether they had found entrance to the crypt and stole as they thought the dead body or whether by some dire mischance they found her abroad, under her disguise as a ghost. At any rate, they had captured her, and through devious ways amongst the mountains, were bearing her back to Turkey. It was manifest that when she was on Turkish soil, the Sultan would force a marriage on her, so as eventually to secure for himself or his successors, as against all other nations, a claim for the suzerainty or guardianship of the Blue Mountains. Such was the state of affairs when the Gospodar Rupert threw himself into the pursuit with fiery zeal and the berserk passion which he inherited from Viking ancestors, whence of old came the sword of freedom himself. But at that very time was another possibility which the Gospodar was himself the first to realize. Failing the getting of the Voivodin safe to Turkish soil, the ravishers might kill her. Such would be entirely in accord with the base traditions and history of the Moslems. So, too, it would accord with Turkish customs and the Sultan's present desires. It would, in its way, benefit the ultimate strategic ends of Turkey. For, were once the Visarian race at an end, the subjection of the land of the Blue Mountains might, in their view, be an easier task than it had yet been found to be. Such illustrious lady were the conditions of affairs when the Gospodar Rupert first drew his handjar for the Blue Mountains and what it held most dear, the Leologue, Archbishop of the Eastern Church in the land of the Blue Mountains. Rupert's journal continued, July 8th, 1907. I wonder if ever in the long, strange history of the world had there come to any other such glad tidings as came to me, and even then rather inferentially than directly, from the Archimandrite's answers to my questioning. Happily I was able to restrain myself, or I should have created some strange confusion, which might have evoked distrust, and would certainly have hampered us in our pursuit. For a little I could hardly accept the truth which wove itself through my brain, as the true inwardness of each fact came home to me, and took its place in the whole fabric. But even the most welcome truth has to be accepted sometime by even a doubting heart. My heart, whatever it may have been, was not then a doubting heart, but a very, very grateful one. It was only the splendid magnitude of the truth which forbade its immediate acceptance. I could have shouted for joy, and only stilled myself by keeping my thoughts fixed on the danger which my wife was in. My wife. My wife. Not a vampire. Not a poor harassed creature doomed to terrible woe, but a splendid woman, brave beyond belief, patriotic in a way which has but few peers, even in the wide history of bravery. I began to understand the true meaning of the strange occurrences that have come into my life. Even the origin and purpose of that first strange visit to my room became clear. No wonder that the girl could move about the castle in so mysterious a manner. She had lived there all her life, and was familiar with the secret ways of entrance and exit. I had always believed that the place must have been honeycombed with secret passages. No wonder that she could find the way to the battlements, mysterious to everybody else. No wonder that she could meet me at the flagstaff when she so desired. To say that I was in a tumult would be to but faintly express my condition. I was wrapped into a heaven of delight, which had no measure in all my adventurous life the lifting of the veil which showed that my wife, mine, one in all sincerity in the very teeth of appalling difficulties and dangers, was no vampire, no corpse, no ghost or phantom, but a real woman of flesh and blood, of affection and love and passion. Now at last would my love be crowned indeed, when, having rescued her from the marauders, I should bear her to my own home, where she would live and reign in peace and comfort and honour, and in love and wifely happiness, if I could achieve such a blessing for her and for myself. But here a dreadful thought flashed across me, which in an instant turned my joy to despair, my throbbing heart to ice. As she is a real woman, she is in greater danger than ever in the hands of Turkish ruffians. To them, a woman is in any case no more than a sheep. And if they cannot bring her to the harem of the sultan, they may deem it the next wisest step to kill her. In that way, too, they might find a better chance of escape. Once rid of her, the party could separate, and there might be a chance of some of them finding escape as individuals that would not exist for a party. But even if they did not kill her, to escape with her would be to condemn her to the worst fate of all, the harem of the Turk. Lifelong misery and despair, however long that life might be, must be the lot of a Christian woman doomed to such a lot. And to her, just happily wedded, and after she had served her country in such a noble way as she had done, that dreadful life of shameful slavery would be a misery beyond belief. She must be rescued, and quickly. The marauders must be caught soon, and suddenly, so that they may have neither time nor opportunity to armour, as they would be certain to do if they have warning of immediate danger. On! On! And on it was, through all that terrible night, as well as we could through the forest. It was a race between the mountaineers and myself, as to who should be first. I understood now the feeling that animated them, and which singled them out even from amongst their fiery comrades, when the danger of the Voivodin became known. These men were no mean contestants, even in such a race, and, strong as I am, it took my utmost effort to keep ahead of them. They were keen as leopards and as swift. Their lives had been spent among the mountains, and their hearts and souls were in the chase. I doubt not that if the death of any one of us could have, through any means, effected my wife's release, We should, if necessary, have fought amongst ourselves for the honour. From the nature of the work before us, our party had to keep to the top of the hills. We had not only to keep observation on the flying party whom we followed, and to prevent them making discovery of us, but we had to be always in a position to receive and answer signals made to us from the castle, or sent to us from other eminences. End of Part 9 Recording by Thomas Copeland